Good morning. Welcome to Eastern Shore Baptist Church's podcast. My name is Stuart Davidson. I'm so thrilled that you have decided to tune in this week. I certainly hope that today's message will be both encouraging to you, but also I pray that it will be convicting. You can find out more about our church by visiting www.myesbc.net. God bless you and look forward to seeing you soon at church. Good morning. We're, uh, we're continuing our series uh, through, the, through the Gospel of Luke, and today we're going to be looking at the very beginning of Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. If you want to, you can open up your Bibles and turn there if you would like. Um, this morning, have you ever felt like the, the third wheel? I, uh, I can hardly remember a time where I was not either dating my wife or clearly married to her, but there was a really short period of time when we were at Sanford University together, and and uh, we had gone on one of the proverbial breaks. Ever taken a break before? Ever had one of those? Uh, my wife, uh, girlfriend then at the time, uh, she was a senior in high school. I was a freshman uh, in college. And so we were doing the sort of long distance thing. She was in Montgomery. I was in, Bur- in Birmingham. And we were trying to figure out how to make the, the relationship work. And, you know, she was 17. I was 18 years old at the time. And, you know, we didn't really have all the answers, and so uh, we got together one weekend, and we talked, and we hashed it out, and we ended up breaking up. Now, uh, thankfully, the breakup clearly didn't last for very long, because we're still together today, which is great. Um, but we went our separate ways for a real short period of time, and she stayed in Montgomery, and I was in Birmingham. And, and I can remember on one weekend, uh, while we were broken up, um, I was in my dorm room, and uh, I was... Uh, you know, listening to slow songs on the radio with my blinds pulled uh, and thinking only of her at the time and uh, embracing sort of this depression that had fallen over me. And my roommate uh, came in and he noticed that uh, I was listening entirely way too much of Michael Bolton songs. And he said, uh, you know, back in the 90s, Michael Bolton was cool. He's not cool now. So I'm not even really sure he was that cool back in the 90s. But uh, anyway, I, he came into my dorm room and he said, Stuart, you know, I, I can't leave you like this. I can't leave you this way. You, you need to come out and, and, uh, and get some sunlight and eat some food. And, and I said, uh, I don't really want to do that. And he said, I tell you what, my, my girlfriend and I, we're, we're going out tonight in Birmingham. Uh, we're not going to be doing anything really special. Why don't you come with us? And I said, okay, that's fine. And so I, I went on a date with my roommate and his girlfriend, and I was there with them, and it was incredibly awkward, incredibly awkward. So they sat together on one side of the booth, uh, which is weird, I think, when people do that. Do y'all ever do, y'all see people that do that out on dates? They don't sit across from one another. They sit together, like on the same. Some of you are like, we do that every day. That's okay. That's cool. That's good. That's good. It's a little weird, but that's okay. Um, but they sat together, and I was a part, you know, on the other side of the table sort of looking at them, and they were holding hands with one another, and they were looking at each other. They really weren't speaking to each other. They were just looking at each other, which I also thought was, was kind of strange. I didn't know if they had some sort of uh, telepathy thing going on or, or what. But uh, in that experience, um, I felt like the third wheel, and I told myself, never again am I going to do this. I'm never going to go out on a date 
uh, with a, a boyfriend and girlfriend without having someone with me. And I never did, which is really wonderful. And it's funny, though, as I uh, came out of that experience, as I started thinking about not my, my place just in a, in a dating situation or even a marital situation, I began to think of myself uh, in a spiritual situation as well. Because I believe that there are some of us that feel like the third wheel when it comes to the church. Uh, we walk in these doors and we see people that are joyful, and we don't have that joy. Uh, we see people who are serving, and we don't really know exactly where we're supposed to go or how we're supposed to fit. We see people deploying spiritual gifts that we're supposed to have and believe that we have, and yet we look around and we think, I don't exactly know where to, to put my spiritual gift or how to use it. And so many times we come into a church situation feeling like the third wheel. Not, not exactly knowing where we fit, we just know we're kind of uncomfortable. And I think sometimes we read the Bible, and as we read Scripture, we begin to think about it. And, you know, it seems like everybody in the Bible had a place. It seems like everybody in the Bible had a plan and had a purpose. And it seems like everybody in the Bible sort of knew where they were supposed to be in the grand scheme of Jesus' ministry. And when we read it, it can be kind of frustrating because sometimes we ask ourselves the questions, and I say we, maybe it's just me, but I, I begin to ask myself the question, Lord, where do you want me to be? What do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? Where do you want me to serve? And so maybe this morning you are feeling kind of like I felt when I didn't have Angela with me and at that dinner table looking across and thinking, man, I just feel like a third wheel. So this morning, fill in that blank for me, if you will. Have you ever felt like the third wheel, spiritually? Now, I want to give you a little background and context this morning of, of Luke chapter 8, uh, verses 1 through 3. Uh, Jesus is rising in his popularity. He is becoming a very popular figure uh, in the ancient world, certainly throughout Palestine, Judea, and Samaria, and Galilee, He's becoming very popular, in particular, with folks that are down and out. Uh, he had a particular way about him that, that challenged the, the common thoughts of what it meant to be very holy and very righteous. And so there were people that were inviting Jesus to, uh, to talk with them, to eat with them, to spend time with them, especially people that were viewed upon as being religious and pious. So even the Pharisees had, had somewhat, I wouldn't say taking a liking to Jesus because that clearly is not accurate, but they were showing interest in Jesus at the time. And so uh, Jesus was a very helpful person. He helped the broken. He healed the hurting. Uh, Jesus did things differently and called people to follow him that had very little religious background uh, in their life. And he was uh, somewhat of a respected rabbi. I'm not sure exactly at this point. There were many people that were thinking that he was the savior of the world, the Messiah, the promised one. There had been declarations of that from Jesus' own disciples, but there were still people that simply called Jesus master. There were people that uh, still simply called Jesus teacher. Luke continues to chronicle the life and the travels of this unlikely commoner from Nazareth who turns the world upside down through his miracles and teachings. And so that's where we are today. Jesus is a traveling prophet. He's a traveling rabbi. He's a traveling teacher going from city to city, speaking to large crowds, but also taking enough time to spend time with individuals as well. 
And so that's where we are in Luke chapter 8. If you want to, you can join with me. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3 from the English Standard Version. Uh, You can read with me, verse 1. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also were some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out of, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who had provided for them out of their means. So maybe this morning you're wondering, okay, uh, Stuart, where is the sermon in that three verses? Well, this is why I go to seminary, okay, to teach me how to pull a sermon out of those three verses, okay? So let's get started this morning. So who has a place in Jesus's ministry? Now, there are three distinct people that find their role in Jesus's ministry mentioned in verses one through three. Uh, Roman number one is this, the small and insignificant. The small and insignificant have a place and a role in Jesus's ministry. You might even put the word seemingly small and seemingly insignificant. I love the fact, by the way, when we are reading about Christ, that Christ is always a man on the move. He's never still for very long. He never seemed to stay in one place for very long. Jesus is a man with a purpose. And what is that purpose? Well, the scripture tells us what it is. It spells it out for us in verse 1. He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. It's not bad news, but it's good news. The Greek word, by the way, for good news is euanglion. It's where we get our word evangelism from, euanglion. And this is what it actually is. It is good news about, well, I mean, Jesus, (laughs) The good news is Jesus. Jesus is the good news. And it's good news for everyone. And so I love the fact that Jesus was a man on the move letting people know about himself. He is the centerpiece of his own message. Now, it's shocking to me that Jesus is in these small, insignificant towns and villages sharing the good news about the Savior of the world, which he already is. I would have thought that Jesus would go straight to Jerusalem or straight to Rome or straight to one of the larger cities to let people know in the urban areas where there are more population density exists. But no, Jesus goes to these small villages, these small places, and and these towns. Now, about a week ago, some of you attended a concert in New Orleans. You took your families to see Taylor Swift. Now, this maybe resonates a little bit more with our, our youth audience, but... Generally speaking, I would imagine that most of you know who Taylor Swift is. She's uh, a singer. She's a rock star, if you will. And she had a concert, a huge concert, over in New Orleans, Louisiana, about two and a half hours drive uh, west of where we are today, and it was in the Superdome. The concert was so big, by the way, she set a record for the most attendance of a woman to have a concert in the United States of America. That's a lot of people showing up for one concert. Now, I began to think about it. Why didn't Taylor Swift have her concert in Bromley? 
Why, why didn't Taylor Swift have her concert at City Hall or one of the civic centers in Robertsdale or Baymanette? I used to play basketball in Montgomery, and, and we would travel around. We had an area that we would travel around in. And no kidding, there is a town in Alabama called Slap Out. And we would play basketball in Slap Out, Alabama. Why didn't Taylor Swift take her concert to Slap Out, Alabama? Well, the answer, I think, is fairly obvious. The Slap Out market is not very large. The money that Taylor would make would not be enough for her to even show up. You see, Taylor Swift went to New Orleans not to just entertain the masses. She went there because there was something in it for her. She went there because there was a payday waiting for her at the end of the day. Now, when you think of superstars, Taylor Swift is nothing in comparison to Jesus. She is a miniature, minute blip on the radar screen when it talks about changing the world. Jesus is at the top of the list. He outshines every one of them. There's no rock star. There's no show that could possibly compare to anything that Jesus ever did or is continuing to do. Yet Jesus took his message not just to the largest markets. He took them to the small, insignificant places of the world. Notice that Luke doesn't even remark into the names of the, the cities and the villages. They were so small and seemingly so insignificant, they are not even named in the text. And yet Jesus did not come to entertain the masses for a big payday for himself. No, rather Jesus came to engage the minor characters of the world with the gospel of the kingdom of God. And if that message can be done with Jesus, then we should be doing the same when I read this really short passage in verse 1, I was so encouraged. That means that there's a place for me and for you. There's a place for the common people on earth to be extraordinary people in the kingdom of God. The gospel is not just meant for Jerusalem and Rome and the big cities. It's meant for the small places and the small people of the world. Make no mistake, by the way, that Everyone in every place is important to Jesus. Everyone in every place is important to Jesus. Whether you're big or small, whether you're rich or poor, what we really discover in reading this passage is that no one is small. Everyone is worthwhile and everyone deserves to hear about him. Now, does Jesus eventually land in Jerusalem? Yes, he does. He eventually does. Does the message of the gospel, does it eventually reach Rome? Yes, it does. But Jesus begins his ministry through a grassroots campaign, going to smaller places and allowing the message to build person to person. The apostle Paul understood that everyone matters to Christ. Everyone matters to Christ, even the small places of the world. That's why Paul sought to be all things to all people that he might win, but a few. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22, he says, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that I might be able to save some. So who has a place in Jesus' ministry? Roman number one, the small and insignificant, seemingly small 
seemingly insignificant. Number two, the called and charismatic. The called and charismatic have a place at the ministry table of Christ. You uh, look at, uh, again, Luke chapter 8, verse 1. It says, soon afterward, he went on through the cities and the villages, the small and insignificant, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And who were with him? The twelve. And the twelve were with him. Do you know people that constantly seem to find their way into the limelight? They're always in front of center of, of seemingly every single event uh, that, that you go to. Some people are just naturally good at, at speaking in front of audiences, while others are terrified and shrink away into the shadows. By the way, they say that public speaking is, is the number one fear of people, even more so than death. <laughs> Did you know that? That's, that's funny, because death is kind of scary. It always amazes me when, uh, I'll tell you one of my fears is singing. Uh, I think singing is terrifying. See, some people are like, man, Stuart, I could not get up and do what you do and look across the room and, and, and speak and teach. But, but see, I, I don't know. I have, I have real fear of, of getting up here and singing in front of people. I, I think that those people are really, really bold. I, I wish I could sing as sincerely as Ed Pickle. Man, I wish I could. Just stand up here and sing. Ed and I, we did a funeral together and just sang. That was this week. I wish I had the, the Disney voice of Marcia Scarborough. Boy, wouldn't that be cool? She sounds like a Disney princess, literally, like Ariel. It's crazy. I wish I could bring people to their feet like Dana Brown. Have y'all ever noticed whenever Dana Brown sings, man, people just stand up. No one's ever stood for me after I've preached. <laughs> Never happens. If anything, people leave. I wish I could stir the soul of the masses with my golden voice like Kenny Hoven. Boy, wouldn't that be great? I'm sorry. I said Kenny. I meant to say Azure. I meant to say Azure. That's what I meant to say. <laughs> These people are unbelievable to me. The point being, not everyone has that kind of gift, do they? Not everybody has that kind of gift. When you think about the ministry of Jesus and the proclamation of the good news, I'm thankful that he calls all sorts of people. All sorts of people. Uh, preachers are really quick to point out the truth that Jesus was here for the down and out. That is absolutely true. But he also calls people who show the potential for limelight leadership. Well, what I mean by that is those people who are good communicators, stellar servants, and people that have big personalities, people that stand out from a crowd. And so where am I pulling this from? Well, I'm pulling it from this passage. He went to unnamed places to meet unnamed people, but he also had his disciples with him. These 12 disciples were clearly called men who each had specific talents and gifts that Jesus utilized on an individual basis. They were called to perform miracles. They were called to heal people, drive out demons, preach, teach, establish the church, and, and, and really write Scripture through the Holy Spirit's inspiration. These men, they all had strong personalities, and we learn a lot about them, right? We learn a lot about them, but, and we find ourselves in them. We see our own personalities in them. I began to think about the 12. 
And I began to think, you know, I wish I was as evangelical as Andrew. I wish I was as bold as Peter. I wish I had the, the speaking power of the sons of thunder, James and John. I wish I had the faith of Nathaniel. I wish I had the assuredness of Philip. I wish I had the obedience of Matthew. I wish I had the honesty and the shadow of doubt like Thomas. I wish I could be satisfied I wish I could be satisfied in one of the supporting roles like James, who is also called the less. I wish I had the energy and passion as Simon, who is also called the zealot. I wish I was as tenderhearted, compassionate, and had a childlike faith like Thaddeus. The truth is that no matter what your personality is, you can see yourselves reflected in any of these 12 men, whether you're a man, a woman, or a child. The point that I'm making here is that clearly there is a place for people like this in Jesus' ministry as well. On Sunday nights, uh, Bryant and I and a few others, we go out on visitation and meet families that have uh, visited our church. And Sunday night this past week was one of the most inspiring visits I've had in recent memory. While I, I won't name the family that I, that I visited, I will tell you that my conversation with, in particular, the father of this home was incredibly refreshing. And there I met a man who was passionate about God's Word, excited about leadership in the local church. He wanted to share the gospel with his community. He desired to be the spiritual leader of his home. And he could completely and eloquently articulate his faith. What do I believe? And it was really stunning to hear because there's not very many times when we make visits like this that people are able to do that. One thing that he told me that I also thought fit into the message today is, is that he has this desire for men in the church to stop, as he said, sitting on their hands. Oh, what a unique expression. Men sitting on their hands. He wants them to lead. He desires for them to worship, to be conformed to the image of Christ and to make a difference in the world for the glory of God. Friends, I was so encouraged that I almost passed an offering plate to myself and just wanted to give something to it. Felt like I had been in church. The ministry of Jesus is to the down and out, the lowest of the low, but it's also to the heroic. It's a call to action that may put us in the limelight. And there are some of us, I believe, that are sitting in the shadows today that God has this great big plan for, this great big purpose for your life, but we're too busy sitting on our hands waiting for someone else to lead, waiting for someone else to do the job, waiting for someone else to share the good news. Well, I don't want to offend. I don't want to take someone else's spot. No, friend, that's your spot that God has for you. They, these disciples, use their God-given charisma to shine for Jesus. Perhaps our church 
Perhaps our church needs the same kind of energy and enthusiasm, not just from our men, but from everyone. Remember Peter's encouragement to use our gifts at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 through 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God might be glorified through Christ Jesus to bring him glory and dominion forever and ever. When we use our gifts, we don't bring ourselves glory. We bring God glory. So who else has a position there at the table of Christ? We see the small and the insignificant. In point two, we see the called, the charismatic. And in point three, we have the forgotten and the fearful. The forgotten and the fearful. Go on and Chapter 2, or or verse 2, excuse me, and it says, And and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out of, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. So Jesus went to these unnamed places to reveal the good news to the seemingly insignificant people. We know that he took his charismatic followers, and then we discover a consistent aspect in Jesus' ministry. He took women with him. This is now the second week in a row that we see the profound impact that in particular women had in Jesus' ministry. Last week we talked about a woman who we believe to be Mary Magdalene. We, we talk about Mary Magdalene who shows up at the Pharisee's house and worships Jesus. This woman provides an opportunity for us to learn more about what it really means to worship Jesus. We don't learn that from a man. We learn it from a woman. And here again, we find three more women who have an incredible impact on Jesus's life, including that of Mary Magdalene. Jesus loved having all types of people to be foundational parts of his ministry. The first woman that we meet here is Mary Magdalene. She was going through a a potentially dark time in her life. She had seven demons that were expelled from her body. Mary, most scholars believe, was the woman who kissed Jesus' feet and cleaned his feet with her tears and her hair. And that's obviously what I believe as well. So we know that Mary was a broken sinner. She was radically converted and she became a shoulder-to-shoulder follower of Christ Jesus. And Scripture tells us that Jesus had a love for Mary. I mean, shoulder-to-shoulder with Jesus, walking side-by-side with him. Next, we meet Joanna. This was Herod's household manager. When I say Herod, the same Herod that had Jesus' cousin John executed. We know that Joanna was a woman of means. She was an upper citizen, upper class citizen. She came from wealth, and she could have been, and uh, she was a part of Herod's uh, palatial court. Joanna was a bold woman who left the uh, uh, aristocracy of the palace for the dirty roads of Palestine. She benefited Jesus by taking her considerable wealth and she uh, funded the mission of Christ. Joanna, by the way, if you're looking for a converse to who Joanna is, think of the rich young ruler. Do you remember the rich young ruler? 
the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and he begins to uh, brag on all the things that he's done and about how perfectly he follows the law. And then Jesus says, well, all you have to do is sell everything you own and come follow me. And the scripture tells us in Mark that the rich young ruler, he turns and he, he walks away downcast because he was a man of great means and wealth. Joanna literally could not be more opposite than the rich young ruler. Joanna was A, a woman, but then she was a woman of considerable wealth in the palatial court of the king himself. And Jesus, I can imagine, it's off text, off scripture, but clearly Jesus had a similar message for Joanna. Joanna, leave it all behind. Come follow me. And Joanna, she had the gall, she had the, the, the fearlessness and the courageousness to say, okay. And she does exactly what the rich young ruler could not. She left it all to follow Jesus and uses her considerable wealth and means to fund the mission of Christ. That's one bold gal. By the way, it was frowned upon to leave the court of the king. There was only one king in Herod's eyes, and I promise you, it was not Jesus. Many scholars believe that the moment that Joanna left the court of the earthly king, that she became a fugitive running with the king of kings. I think that's a good trade, don't you? She leaves all the glitz and the glamour of Herod's court. And now she's a part of the heavenly court. Next we meet Susanna. Sadly, we don't know much about her other than she, listen to this. This is what we learned from Susanna in just this one piece of scripture. We find out that she was healed. We find out that she followed Jesus. She find, we find out that she loved Jesus and that she gave to Jesus. And I'll be honest with you, if that is all that's remembered of me at the end of my life, I think I'm doing pretty good. If, if the only thing people remember of me was that I was healed because of the Holy Spirit's work in my life through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, that I willingly followed Christ, that I loved Christ, and that I did everything I could to give to my king at the end of the day, that's a pretty good day. Let me remind you that in rabbi, in, in the days of rabbis, especially Jesus' day, rabbis never invited women to follow them. Women were excluded from, the, from that privilege. Literally, the only reason why rabbis did not ask women to follow them was because of their gender. And we think we live in, in gender gaps now, but it was truly the only reason that they were not asked to follow was because of their gender. Women were seen as second-class citizens. These women were seen as second-class citizens, and yet they had a primary seat at the table of Jesus. Think about, think about the ministry of women in Jesus' ministry. It was women, women who stood with Jesus when he was dying on the cross. Them and one man. It was women that helped arrange his burial. It was women who ministered to his deceased body, and it was women who proclaimed the resurrection of Christ to the bold disciples. I use that word loosely, bold. Women, not men. 
Luke did not name the cities that Jesus visited, but he did name the women. This means that these three women, while not members of the 12 disciples, were very much beloved by Jesus, and clearly Jesus was thankful for them. You know that in Jesus' group of ragtag believers, there's a, really a picture of us. It's the picture of the church, the body of Christ, all different, all possessing different yet valuable skills, gifts, and qualities. Growing up as a kid, and I'll finish with this. Growing up as a kid, we used to play a, a schoolhouse game. We called it tug-of-war. You remember tug-of-war? And, and I was at field day a few months ago at my boys' school, and I, I saw that they had a big tug-of-war between classes. This is sort of what it looks like. Not, my, not at my boys' school. Those guys are clearly too old. But, but I, they, they do tug-of-war between classes, and it was interesting how they arranged the kids. Do you know what I'm about to tell you, how they arranged the kids? So they put the small kids, right? They put the small kids up front on the tug-of-war, right? And as you go down the line, guess what happens to that kid? He gets a little taller, a little bigger. And then at the very back end of the line, they put Stuart Davidson. <laughs> right? Very back end. Why? Why do they put Stuart at the back end of the line? Because I'd be the anchor. I'm the heaviest. Right? They put the larger kid at the very end. But what's really fascinating is I began to read this scripture and thought about, I thought about the tug of war. And I started thinking, you know, in this spiritual life, there's clearly a tug of war going on. You've got Satan on one side. He's trying to pull us his direction. And then you've got the church on this side. You've got the team Jesus, if you will, that's on this side. And you've got all these people that are lined out according to their gifts and according to their abilities. And we're all pulling together this way. You see that not only in the church, but you see it in Jesus' ministry as well. That there's a place for everybody. There's a place for any skill. There's a place for any talent. There's a place for any gift that Jesus has given you. Some of us are better supporters, and that's phenomenal. We couldn't do what we do, right? We couldn't have church if it weren't for the supporting people. Chances are you walk out of here every single week, and you have no idea that Brent Harpin controls the lights in this room. They just kind of go on and off magically, like, like it's the Holy Spirit flipping lights in the back. You have no idea that James Councilman is turning up sound and turning down sound. And it just, when you walk in, it just magically works. We never talk about them. We never thank them. It just happens. You know, right now we've got people, there's probably about 30 kids right now in our children's church area. And, and, you, and most of us in this room don't have kids. A lot of us do, clearly. But for those of us that don't have kids, you walk out of here and don't even think about the kids that are in children's church or the adults that are working with them right now, making these things happen. And yet there's also a place for people, quite frankly, like me, who stand in the light. And by the way, I don't recommend the light to everybody. Sometimes I wish I wasn't in the light because you know what the light does? The light exposes flaws, folks. The light ain't all it's cracked up to be, I promise. And yet, God uses it all. John 13, verses 12 through 14. Look at what Jesus did. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments, he resumed his place. And he said to them, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, 
you also ought to wash one another's feet. It's my prayer as your pastor that we will use all of our gifts, the varied graces that we all possess, that we will use those gifts not only to grow and expand the kingdom of God, but that we will effectively use those gifts to love and serve one another.